The Diecast Movie Podcast proudly presents James Whale Retrospective Series, where we will be discussing the life, work, and legacy of director James Whale, with guest appearances from filmmakers, film historians, and other podcasters. We would like to give a special thank you to Reber Clark for the intro music. Please enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast as we're continuing the James Whale retrospective with the kiss before the mirror. I'm joined with Rod Barnett, who's a podcaster with the Nashy Cast and the Bloody Pit, and who will also be joining me for the episode of Showboat that we'll be doing later on in the retrospective. Just to let the audience members know, we actually recorded Showboat prior to the kiss before the mirror because while I was talking to Rod during the Showboat episode, um, before and after, we were discussing how he purchased the Kiss Before the Mirror, and he, he thought it'd be interesting to do. So I purchased it also, and that led us to adding this to the retrospective. So it, just to let people know, this episode will be coming out prior to that one, but in case we double up with some <laughs> of the commentary. Rod, how you doing today? I'm doing pretty well, other than uh, uh, my, my standard uh, head cold that comes around as soon as the weather starts to change seriously to colder. So... Uh, that's why my voice may sound as if I'm uh, sexier than I should be. I'm not going to comment on Rod's sexiness or not. I'll leave that up to the listeners. Vivid imaginations. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it would, it would take a vivid imagination, especially this morning. That's true. But I've, but I've met Rod before and I'm not, and Rod is definitely not an ugly man, you know, so I'm just going to say that. So it's, you know, I think Rod, I think Rod, you're good looking, but as to whether you're sexy or not, that's oh. for other eyes. <laughs> Oh, well, you know, thank, thank, thank you very much. I, re, I return the compliment with your, your soulful eyes. Sir. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and now we know you need to have your vision checked. Okay. So. Oh, where are my glasses? Where are my glasses? Rod, just so the listeners know, can you talk a little bit about the bloody pit and Nashi cast that you do? So people have an idea of what, Ooh, uh, if, yeah. they, if they tune into your podcast, what they'd be looking forward to. Well, on the, the Nashi cast, which is the older of the two, uh, we primarily have spent uh, about 12 years covering the films of uh, Spanish horror icon Paul Nashi. But we also do extra episodes where we talk about other Spanish horror films uh, kind of across the decade, but mostly focused on the, on the, uh, the period from the uh, 60s through the 80s, where, which is where uh, Paul Nashi was most active. Um, we, we, man, if there's a Paul Nashi film out there, if we can find an English language version of it, we have covered it. Uh, and, uh, right now we're focusing on uh, talking to other people who are fans of Nashi and getting their perspectives and also still continuing to cover, uh, the occasional, uh, uh what we call beyond Nashi film, which are the other Spanish horror films from, uh, from the period. And actually we've, uh, we've done a few from uh, the past, Ooh, even just the past 10 years as well, because the, uh, the Spanish horror genre continues to live, grow, and breathe. Man, occasionally it kicks out something that really needs some more attention brought to it. The Bloody Pit is kind of an offshoot from that podcast, uh, taking its name from my blog, which is kind of the, the starting point for all of this stuff, kind of the, the, the jump page for, for everything. It's a blog called The Bloody Pit of Rod, and uh, from that page you can find... Uh, both, both of the podcasts. The Bloody Pit is much more free-ranging. I don't, uh, 
I don't discriminate on that one uh, by keeping it simply a uh, lockdown into uh, Spanish filmmakers. As a matter of fact, we range wildly across everything in their grandmother. I mean, just this year, we've covered, you know, Italian science fiction films, uh, Spielberg's 1941, um, the, the bizarre horror film Evil Speak from 1981 with Clint Howard. And uh, my, my podcasting partner on the NashiCast, Craig Glenn and I, have an ongoing uh, thread of shows on there where we're covering the universal horror films of the 1940s just to kind of educate ourselves about that whole thread of lesser known and lesser talked about movies. So uh, that's a long way of just saying that you never know what the next episode of The Play Fit is going to be. And to give listeners an idea, literally you'll be listening to them cover a Sherlock Holmes movie, then go into Frankenstein meets the Wolf Band. And it's just, and then all of a sudden they're doing evil speak. I mean, it's just, it's, it rotates Mm -hmm. around. And I know listeners to our show, we do kind of the similar thing by using the role of a die to decide what genre. So it has that same um, eclectic taste of, you never know what movie you're going to get. And Rodden is the guest host or host, regular host to have very good and detailed information about the movie to do good research, that kind of stuff. But I will warn listeners that at their episodes are already in the explicit zone. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, sometimes there's no, absolutely no way to not talk about a, uh, a satanic pig movie without, uh, without using foul language. So. <laughs> well, that, that could be true. Sometimes you, you end up with your mouth in the sty. But, yeah. <laughs> this is true. This is true. But today we're talking about The Kiss Before the Mirror. And we're doing this movie because you – decided hey let's do this movie so why why did you purchase this movie and decide like hey this would be a good movie to go into what led you to because i know for both you and i I think this is a first time watch but oh yeah what led you to what what led you to this little joy oh well what 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 it was primarily was it was a film that james whale made uh in the years between frankenstein bride of frankenstein that i had only in only recently really learned about at all and so when it was issued on Blu-ray, I immediately thought, well, that's that's good news. I mean, because that's that's essentially just another, you know, another thing for me to be able to see from that period. And it being a pre-code film, I knew immediately, it would, uh, you know, there would be a, a kind of a, shall we say, a, an added level of da- of possible uh, danger to it, where the, you know, it was <clears throat> came out in '33. So what we're talking about is a movie that. Uh, being pre-code might have a little bit more salacious material. It might have a, a more adult take on some of these uh, subjects than was going to be allowed just a year or two later after the code came out. And so uh, when, I, when I read about what the, the plot line involved, I thought, oh man, I've got to see what this is all about. And then I learned that it was based on a play and that really sealed the deal. It's like James Whale, pre-code, about, uh, you know, about uh, wife murders and, uh, you know, hey, let's, let's just go ahead and get this. I want to see what this thing is like. And I'm glad you brought it up because it's, it's a lean, mean 69 minutes. I mean, this, this, is, this is a uh, – yeah. compared, to, compared to some of the movies that are out nowadays like Dune and Eternals, uh, this, this, is, this is almost like a commercial. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> kind of, sort of. And as someone who, I will say, though, that someone who saw Dune last, just last night, uh, I got to say, it didn't feel like two and a half hours. But this, I got I to admit, 
before we even get into the full discussion, I think this movie could have used an extra few scenes, uh, and I'll get to specifics as we go along. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it it moves along that there are there. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's interesting, and you could tell from watching it, it was a play at one time. But um, James Whale did, I think, a pretty good job of of porting it over from the to theater to the cinema. You know, trying not to make it look like it was too stagey um, with the yeah. with the the sets and the the, um, the cinematography that was going on. So I think he did a, a, a very good job of hiding that. But you could still tell, at least from my perspective, that it was a play at one time. Oh, certainly. There's a. I hate to say it, but it is one of the detriments of the film that it it, it does feel a little stagey at certain points. And strangely enough, not in the scenes that I would have expected. It doesn't feel very stagey in the uh, latter part of the movie when you get to the courtroom sequences. Where it feels stagey, strangely enough, is in the first half when we're uh, when we're in people's homes. And uh, there, there's, I'm not saying that's a bad thing necessarily, but it does feel a little more stagey in the first half than in the second half. Oh, I agree with you. I agree with you because I was, I was getting that feeling also. And to give people an idea, what was the plot, or the storyline that, that, that sold it to you, Rod, so you can tell people oh. so they have an idea what the movie's about? And, I've, and listeners, we well, won't spoil the idea. ending because I don't think most of you have seen this movie. <laughs> Oh, that's a that's a that's a good point. Yes, I'm glad you I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, essentially, what this is about is um, at the beginning of the film, we 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 witness uh, we witness a man catching his wife uh, with her uh, with her lover. She has snuck off and uh, is obviously has obviously been engaged in a long term affair with another man. Her husband finds them together kills his wife uh what would generally especially in those days have been termed a crime of passion then um, immediately calls the police puts himself you know puts himself in their care and from that point the the story is about uh the the trial uh his his lawyer becomes the main focus of the story uh as the lawyer tries to come up with you know comes up with a defense to try to save the man uh from the hangman's noose and uh, then, strangely enough, almost as if the idea of infidelity is some kind of contagious, contagious virus, he begins immediately to think that his wife may have a lover as well. And the movie proceeds from there. Um, it's, a, it's a really interesting idea. And uh, without, without giving too much away, um, infidelity just seems like... Well, there's a lot to say about what this movie's got going on. I, I, I'm not sure how 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 far into certain subjects we want to go because at a certain point, uh, you, you're giving a little bit too much away. I'm not going to give definitely not going to give the final reveal away. But this is a movie about marital infidelity, the the levels at which um, society will, uh, shall we say, brook violence because of either infidelity or perceived infidelity and what it all really means as far as these relationships are concerned. It's very, um, there's a lot going on there. And because it was made when it was made, it's, it's allowed to be a little bit more, shall we say open in its language and it's in its, in, in its depiction 
um, these relationships. And that is one, one of the things amongst several that make it very, very interesting. Like I say, I'd not heard of this film. I didn't know. I, I hate to say it. It's one of those failings of me as a guy who comes from such a strong interest in the horror genre that James Whale's other feature films are, are often just, they're, they're missing from my view. And that is an, that, that is a sad thing. And I am now, of course, trying to rectify that. Uh, you know, I knew about things, I knew about things like Waterloo Bridge, but I did not know, and I, and I knew about Showboat because it's such a huge thing. But I didn't know about this movie or The Impatient Maiden or uh, By Candlelight or you know, just a lot of these movies that Whale made in the 30s. And I got to say, um, as, as, as weird as this movie is, especially from the perspective of the 21st century, uh, it's really, really enlightening to get a look at these because they're a bizarre look into the mindset of, uh, of, of what people were thinking not just in filmmaking terms, but just in the, the societal terms. I mean, we should say this movie takes place uh, in the play itself as well in Vienna. So, well, I guess I'm just going to dive into this part of the conversation because uh, you know, stop me, stop me if it's a good idea to stop. But well, one, one thing I want to add to your my, thing when you're talking about the movie, I think we can go all the way up to the courtroom, but just not mm-hmm. talk about the resolution. So, if you're talking about, so, yeah. so listeners know, we'll go up to the. Um, the end part, but we won't spoil the ending. So, so there will be spoilers that are in this because we have to be able to talk about certain things, but we just won't talk about how it all resolves. First thing I would point out is that by setting this story in Vienna, we're automatically kind of, and it's an English language film, of course. So we're giving a certain kind of otherness to the, you know, a distance to how we're going to perceive this stuff. But this is as much a reflection of the American way of thinking as it is any society's way of thinking about this kind of thing, especially any Western society's way of thinking about what this movie is really about, which is the relationships between husbands and wives, the the trust that's built through a marriage. And one of the more disturbing aspects of this is that it is impossible to not be completely taken aback by the attitudes of both men and women in this movie that just seems to, I mean, I, I, let's put it this way. I'm watching it with my dear sweet beloved for the first time. This first time, either of us have seen this film. We're sitting there on the couch. And at a certain point, we just turned to each other and we're like, my God, is this the most misogynistic film I've ever seen? Or am I missing something here? Because there, there is so much judgment placed on uh, the, the the women in this film and the 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 the, the way they're talked about, um, it, it's both perfect for the the you know the type of story being told, but it's also so reflective. Not to get too much into the mirror thing quite yet, but it's quite reflective of the society that the story is built out of. Because what we're looking at here is a is is a a, a, a mindset. This movie's reflecting that essentially wives to a degree are simply possessions. And the movie really points this out. And it doesn't, it, it, sometimes it, I was worried that it might be, it, that Whale and his uh, cinematographer, Carl Thun, might be hitting that nail a little too hard. But honestly, it's done, it's not done primarily through dialogue. It's done by the way things are framed, 
and how the the uh, cer- certain looks, and especially the the uh, the cam the camera movement and the way that the sets are placed in such a way so that uh, often these women, these absolutely gorgeous women who are being <laughs> untrue to their husbands, who are cheating on their husbands are placed in uh, such a way so as to align them with other objects that that husband owns. And it's, um, it's this betrayal, this sense of intense betrayal, uh, almost as if, and, and this may sound strong, but the movie kind of seems to lead in that direction. It's almost like having uh, your, your pet turn on you and bite your hand when you're, when you're stroking its head. And, and this look of horror on these men's faces as they realize it's, there's so many things being examined in this. One, if, if you don't know what the, the concept of the crime of passion is, it, the crime of passion is the idea that um, you, you, would, you would be absolved of uh, a crime all the way up to murder if it could be determined or could be thought that you were reacting to some just incredible uh, wrong being done to you. If, if something was so emotionally uh, traumatic that you could not be judged, act, you know, you could not be judged poorly for the reaction and the action that you took upon discovering this piece of information. That's the whole crux of the kind of, the idea of the crime of passion, which is that, you know, killing a, a, a cheating wife uh, is not the same as premeditated murder. But as this movie, this movie smartly, they, 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 they muddy the water on that because, they point out that there's almost no way to have gone through the process of something like this. If it's not in hot blood, if it's something that you're suspecting over time, you're not, this isn't a crime of passion. You deliberately set about to do something and place yourself in a position where that you can claim that what you were doing was a, was an act of, uh, was a crime of passion. This is, this is an hour and nine minute long movie. And it has so much packed into There's so much to discuss here that it would take like 20 hours and perhaps a, a college thesis to really kind of dig completely into it. And uh, I, I find it absolutely fascinating. But uh, I got to say, your first, my first view through, I mean, like, like I say, I'm watching this for the first time in 2021. And looking back at this and being appalled at some of the ideas that just seem to be taken as uh, common, as the, the norm. For these characters is in, is insane, and I and I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm, I, I now feel like I'm talking way too much, and maybe you want to say something. <laughs> well, that's fine. You know, that's why you know, we have guest hosts to come on and, and to give that perspective. And looking at the movie, and and uh, watching it that first time, and going through it, I think you and I are both able to put things in the prospect of this is a viewpoint of what people's mores were like back at a certain period. I mean, we're Mm -hmm. talking almost 90 years ago, you know, give or take a year. And and things are different then as they were like 10 years ago and 20 years ago. And of course, this also is supposed to be taking place in a different country. So there's that cultural differences into it and uh, which are still prevalent today when you go to different cultures and how, you view things in one, your culture one way, and another culture is going to look at you as being barbaric, and you might be thinking they're barbaric because that's just the way you were always brought up. So that ethnocentrism where you might go in thinking 
this is not something that would be happening. So this is it's kind of like hits both of those fields of play when you watch it. But that's one of the beauties of watching an older film. As you said, it allows you in that time capsule to see what things were like then and to get that different viewpoint. And I think what throws people off, unless you paid attention to the very beginning where it says Vienna, because just about everybody's American in the film <laughs> doing their mm-hmm. normal accents, you can easily forget you're, in a, you're supposed to be in a different country. <laughs> yeah, the only person with any kind of, well, there are a couple of secondary characters with different accents, but uh, only the man uh, who, who does the initial murder that sets everything into action is uh, played by Paul Lucas, who uh, was a Hungarian actor, and so he has a, he has a, a strong accent. So he's, he's, just, he's the only major character in the movie who sounds like anything other than somebody who was born and bred in the, you know, in Iowa or Ohio. So yeah. And he plays Dr. Walter, Walter, um, Brensdorf. Mm-hmm. And for listeners wondering, he, all these actors pretty much have, most of them have extensive credits. I mean, a huge amount, but I remembered him from the three musketeers from the, um, the 1930s and he was Athos. So it's just like, you know, because I, I always love those swashbuckler type films. And it's just like, wait, I know I've seen this guy before. And I looked it up and I was like, I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, he's, he's, a, he's a great actor. And I've seen him in a number of things. Uh, uh, he, he's, uh, I, he, I love Secret of the Blue Room. As a matter of fact, I love all the variations on that whole Blue Room thing that Hollywood, they, they made like three or four different versions of. But the, uh, you know, Paul Lucas is one of those actors who's been in a blue bajillion movies. And I've run across him in things like, uh, you know, playing Philo Vance in the Casino Murder Case and and uh, Dodsworth and Dinner at the Ritz. Uh, he was in Hitchcock's The Lady Vanishes. So, I mean, this, this, he, I, I, he was, you know, to, to bring it back down to, to my way of, to my favorite stuff, he was in The Ghost Breakers and The Monster and the Girl. So, come on, man. Paul Lucas is great. <laughs> well, no, I'm saying it's, it's a great cast, and um, which we'll get to as we go through. But I was just... I just wanted to bring him up since we were talking about his particular character being with the accent. And I thought that to see him, the way he portrayed Walter in the jail, you know, as this totally yeah. broken man who, who would, and still even at the end of the movie was broken. And oh, he's a, he, his performance, his performance is extremely strong. He's very, very good. Oh, I know. And, and, and the way he sees his friend, um, played by Frank Morgan, Dr. Paul Held, uh, going down this same path, and he's trying to stop him from going down that path, but he's limited because he's also in jail. And the way he sees certain things happen in the end, and how, like, what is he going to do to try to stop it? And he was trying to do subtle little things, and it was just his character, mm-hmm. that torment of how he has that personal anguish, his friend going down the same path that he doesn't want him to go down. And it's, it's, it was an amazing performance by Paul Lucas. I got, I got to say the second time through the movie, something that I noticed that I didn't, I didn't notice the first time around about his performance is when uh, it's that, it's that initial conversation between him and his lawyer there in the jail. And he's so emotionally distraught and his lawyer played by uh, Frank Morgan is walk is walking him through the, the the events leading up to the murder. He's trying to get a handle on his mindset and what was going on. 
And when he starts asking him questions like, you know, you know, trying to figure out when did you start to suspect something was going on and walking him through and going, okay, you just talk to me, tell me these various things. And, the, and they're going through it. You can see at a certain point that uh, Paul Lucas playing that character that who's just so distraught and is going through this stuff for the first time with anybody else realizes you see this realization just for a brief moment that he did think this through. He did in a sense, prepare himself to do what he did. It wasn't something that just popped into his head. There are all these things that the lawyer keeps walking him through until, until you see that realization on his face and he despairs even more after that. And it's the, and it's that point where his lawyer says, well, you know, we're going to make, we're going to find a way to get you out of being, you know, out of being killed for this murder. And that's why, you know, that's essentially why they're walking through this because it's that beautiful moment of watching the actor playing the character, realizing the truth of what he's done. And that makes his despair as the rest of the story unfolds even stronger because now it's not just this horrible thing that happened. He no longer he now no longer has that little hook to hang his emotions on that make that allow that would allow him to think that he lost control. He knows now he did not, and that's just a, it's it's an amazing moment, and it's not something that I really caught the first time through because it's something you really only would notice effectively after you know you know what happens in the next like ten to fifteen minutes of the movie. It's great stuff. And that's what I mean. It's just, it's so well acted. And Frank Morgan, who plays his lawyer, Dr. Paul Held. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is really the first time I was able to see Frank Morgan play something as a leading man. I, I mean, yeah, it's rare. It's, it's rare. Cause I mean, I think everybody knows Frank Morgan, the wizard from the wizard of Oz. I mean, I, I think virtually everybody knows him in that role, but he yeah. also was nominated for an Oscar for the affairs of Cellini which I'm going to seek out and try to watch because I'm curious now to see what, you know, what his performance like was in that. But I thought it was a very interesting performance because he goes from this journey in the movie and it was, it was, it was so interesting to see how he played it and, and how he, the, 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 this detachment he had at first, then when he starts to see his wife mirroring, (laughs) the same behaviors that were shown and talked about earlier with the, uh, yeah. the previous wife played, you know, Lucy, who was um, Walter's wife. And then he comes obsessed with it and starts to lose his touch with reality. And you can just see all that stuff until he comes up with this plan. And then he becomes detached again because he's following through with the plan. And it's, it's an amazing performance with eye work, body language, and I, I, I don't know. What do, you, what do you think? I think that one could write a, a good little essay about the, an actor's positioning of their head just by watching his performance in this movie because he communicates so much in how he's holding his head in relation to who he is talking to. And I know that sounds strange, but I'm serious. That's the danger of watching a movie like this more than one time is that you start to notice how effectively 
things get communicated simply by the way an actor will stand and hold their head in their hands. And he is, he's, uh, he's, he's very consciously doing things that uh, communicate exactly the thoughts within his head. He, there, there are scenes in this movie near the, near the back half of it where he can barely bring himself to keep his eyes on an even eye line with his wife, where looking at her seems almost to cause him pain. And you can watch him in those scenes where his, he's constantly trying to turn away from her, uh, even at points where it becomes obvious where because he's turned his back on her and is still carrying on a conversation with her. And uh, it's just watching him do the, it's it's perfect. It's the kind of stuff that that uh, stage actors, you know, have have to have to learn, which is you're communicating a lot just by your physicality. And he's so he's he's so good at this. And I have to say, he's not an actor until this movie that I've ever paid that much attention to because, of course, he's he's Frank Morgan. He's the Wizard of Oz, and that's how you primarily remember him if you're an old movie fan. But of course, he was in a he was in a lot of movies, and I had to be reminded. That he was, you know, Oscar nominated for this, that, or the other. He's, you know, lauded, you know, lauded for this, and 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 considered, you know, considered one of the the go-to character actors for certain types of roles, things like that. And you you start to realize, oh yeah, this is a this is a well-trained actor who knew exactly what he was doing. Like I say, if you if you ever get the chance to see this movie, and I do recommend that you do, well, if you if you get caught up in watching Frank Morgan and how he holds his head when he's in conversation with people. It's amazing. He's helped immeasurably by James Whale's uh, framing of shots uh, because, uh, well, for instance, in that earlier scene in the prison, when he's talking to his client, he's always positioned so that he's looking downward, down toward the Paul Lucas character, the man who he's there to defend. He's always looking down at him the way they've got the, the camera kind of positioned a little bit, a little below and to, and to one side so that there's this sympathy that's this curiosity and sympathy that's almost immediately there in just the way he's holding his head. And then of course, Morgan is really good at communicating that kind of stuff. It's he's, he's fantastic. And, and I, I think, I, as I said earlier, when I watched this, it was just eye opening to me as, as it was for you to see Frank Morgan, do so much when when we've only known him for so little, you know. Um, yeah. Just, we, we've only known him for snippets from this great movie, The Wizard of Oz, and to finally see him in this movie, and then I look at his as you did at his filmography, and you're just blown away with all this movies he's been in, and you're just thinking, I've I've only seen a a, a, a small small infinitesimally small sample of the work that he mm-hmm. has out there. And it just makes me want to see more. And all I can say is it's, I'm, if you're Frank Morgan, if you, after you watch this, you will be a Frank Morgan fan as an actor. You know, it's just, you just can't oh, help me. Definitely. I'm, I'm going to be trying to seek out some of these lesser known films that I was unaware of before. Well, it's like some of them, you know, it's like some of them are really big films where he has a small role in things like shop around the shop around the corner. It's like, like come on, man, if you're an old movie fan, you know what, you know what that movie is. But it's like, now I want to seek out some of these others. Uh, I had heard of Hullabaloo, but I've not seen it. And The Wild Man of Borneo, which, of course, is right up my alley. But, man, you look at some of these titles, and it's like, uh, you know, wait a minute. Uh, what's The Ghost Comes Home? What, what the heck is that all about? He's got, a, he's got the leading role in that, according to this. It's like, I, I, I got to see this. 
come on. Oh, I know. And, and for listeners that haven't seen The Kiss Before the Mirror, um, um, Rod and I both own the Blu-ray that came out recently. But there is a very good, I looked at it, a very good copy on YouTube currently. So hopefully it'll still okay. be out there. But if you, so if you want to sample it before you or watch the whole thing, it is there mm-hmm. in its entirety. And it's, it, and it's a nice, good version, you know, so it's. Well, I can't speak to the, to the YouTube version. I haven't taken a look at it, but I got to say, I was very impressed with the, uh, the, 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 the Blu-rays picture quality. And it's just, I mean, it's sparkling, man. This is like a movie that has been sitting in a vault and they were able to just, I mean, it's apparently a, a, a 2K master. I don't know if it's from like the original negative or if it's from a print, but it is spotless and luminous and gorgeous. And this movie draws attention to that in that very opening scene. I mean, this is another movie um, the cinema, with, with the cinematography done by Carl Fruin. And that man knew his job in that opening scene where it's very clear that Whale is trying to uh, open this movie up visually a little bit before we get down to the drawing room stuff by having the opening scene take place, you know, outside amongst these trees with that, you know, don't get me wrong. It's obviously a, a painted backdrop, but it's beautiful and it looks great. And it does give you this, you know, a, a bigger sense of space, but the, the, the Blu-ray is, I recommend the Blu-ray if you can get it for a good price. The, the movie looks phenomenal, and I have to give strong, strong credit to the one tra- to the one uh, extra on it, which is an excellent audio commentary by Alexandra Heller Nicholas. And uh, her walk through this movie is quite informative, and it and it kind of backed up some ideas that I had. And to be honest, she turned me around on my my uh, my uh, initial uh, admitted revulsion about the misogynistic nature of it. She, she, she pointed out uh, some things that, that made me appreciate this movie even more. So if you can get the Blu-ray, if you're curious, go for it. But any way you can see this movie is something I would recommend. Oh, definitely. I, 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 people wonder if we recommend this movie. We do. I mean, I, I, every movie, oh. I think, in this retrospective that we've done with James Whale, I've recommended. Um, and it's, it's just because they're, they're great quality work. And I think one of the reasons they, besides this add extra flair with the cinematography with that opening is Gloria Stewart is fourth build in the list of, you know, the characters and the cast and that kind of stuff. But she's only in the film for a small duration of time. Um, yeah, long enough to get killed. <laughs> and, and, and a little bit of a flashback. And so by having oh, that, that's true, yeah. and having that scene, where she comes in and do that, you're able to, you know, you're, you're billing her. You want to, you know, people are coming to see Gloria Stewart. You have to show a little more Gloria Stewart in the film. And I also like how they used the mirror with the, um, uh, it was like the bird bath that was in there. And she's looking at that and they had her see the black cat, which could be foreshadowing, you know, what's going to happen to her. And it, it was just it was just so well shot and done to set it all up with the mood. Yeah. As, as she goes to meet her lover, who I was shocked as all get out <laughs> to find out that that was Walter Pigeon playing her lover, because it's it's I don't know about you, but it's not the Walter Pigeon I've ever come to know. <laughs> He's this, this extremely young man singing 
I'm hum, you know, like humming a song and dancing around, and um, he's only in it for a very you know, this this that, that opening scene. That's it. But it was just I'm so used to him, to, you know, voyage to the bottom of the sea, the forbidden planet, and here you are, like, whoa, early Walter Pigeon. Yeah, yeah, you're 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 used to him. Uh, you're used to the the middle aged man. This is the, this is the younger actor. And man, he did a he, he did a lot of movies in the '30s, and uh, I I was not surprised to see him looking the way he does because of my obsession with uh, 1930s mystery films. Because he played Nick Carter uh, in uh, Nick Carter Master Detective in 1939. So as far as as far back as that, I saw I I've seen him in different roles uh, as a as a as a younger kind of handsome leading man, and so. Yeah, don't get me wrong. First place I ever saw Walter Pigeon was Forbidden Planet. <laughs> so, <laughs> so my initial vision of him was, was you know, the the, the, the old the older the older gentleman who you know speaks with a with a with a firm deep voice and has much wisdom to impart. But uh, he wasn't always so. And man, there's a lot there's a lot of movies to dig into if you want to see him in his younger days. I mean, he he started back in the silence, of course. So. Oh, I know. Again, it's like another actor with with. A, a huge filmography. And I think it's always interesting when you go back to see actors that you haven't seen before. Um, and at the, at the very start of their careers, um, for instance, like Betty Davis in a, in a, um, mm-hmm. you know, seeing her in one of her first film roles and in Waterloo bridge was just kind of like, you're, you're thrown off. Cause you're like, Whoa, you know, cause it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, but, but she's not the star. It's, she's playing a minor role <laughs> it just it just yeah. makes it interesting because you're so used to seeing her own the screen and carry the screen and and, and everything else in that movie and it's makes it, it different when you're watching something and you're seeing actors you know because everybody has to start somewhere not everybody starts off you know hitting home runs right off the bat in their movie career well, you have to you have to work your way up you have to work your way through uh that's 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 the thing is uh, you, have, you have to prove that you can do what is required of you before you, you know, before they're going to give you a chance at the brass ring. And then, you know, if you can prove your, if you can prove yourself, you're you're going to stand yourself in good stead. Um, let's talk about one more actor in this. Well, for, first of all, let's talk about Nancy Carroll. Um, she plays the uh, the lawyer. She plays. Uh, I'm sorry. She plays uh, Frank Morgan's the, the lawyer character's wife, Maria. Who? Uh, and, huh? Maria. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, and um, the um, you know this isn't giving too much away uh, because we're you know we're we're talking this this is a fast movie, people, and that's going to be something I want to talk about here in just a second. But uh, she plays um, the wife of the lawyer, and she's extremely good. I was not. I don't. I, had you had you had much? Had you ever run across her before? No, and and she's top build. So I'm thinking, okay, she's she's the draw. I mean, if you're top build, you're the draw. Frank Morgan's second build, and 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 it's his movie. It's it's kind of unique because he he's is got the, the most. He's got the most screen time. Yeah, yeah. And, and so yeah, it was bizarre, and it makes me want to find more about see other work of Nancy Carroll. I know she was nominated for an Oscar for The Devil's Holiday, so I figured I'm going to try to seek that one out because if she was nominated for mm-hmm. an Oscar, okay. Obviously, at that time, this was considered one of the best. She didn't win it, but it was one of the best performances, and I'm kind of curious to see what she did in that particular movie. Well, she's she's very good in this movie, but she's also, and I just need to get this out of the way, 
she's as cute as a button. I mean, she has whatever whatever that magic thing is about the camera and some people's faces. She's got it. She's very attractive on screen. She's also, man, she is asked to do a lot in this movie, especially as the story progresses. And she's very good. So I am now, just like you, very curious about looking into some of her other movies. Because I start looking through um, uh, the, the, the stuff. Most of her movie roles take place in the 1930s, which, of course, that's, as far as I'm concerned, that's dull. That's awesome. I can't, I'm like, yes, let me dive in and swim around. But the, uh, the, the joy of this is that I don't think I've seen, like, a single one of them. And so, uh, you know, I start looking at titles like The Night Angel, Personal Maid, Scarlet Dawn, Undercover Man. I'm thinking, huh. We, I, I got, I got to check some of these movies out. She's really good in this, and she has, in some ways, one of the most difficult roles because of, I mean, th- think about, you know, we won't go completely into this. I'll just, but let's consider this, <clears throat> gentle listener. Consider this a, a slight, a slight, uh, a side conversation between the two podcasters you're currently listening to. Think about the stuff she has to do in this movie, the emotional range that she has to cover all the way to the end man she's good she does such as we find out as the movie's going on and again this is going to be a slight spoiler she's also having an affair and yes the way it's found out or or, or shown to us and also found out by paul frank miller's frank mm-hmm. morgan's character is he comes back from visiting Walter at the prison and, and hearing Walter explain how he found out that Lucy was cheating on him. And it was the kiss before the mirror, which explains the title of the whole film. And right. so he's explaining it to Maria. Paul's explaining it to Maria as she's sitting at the mirror, they get ready to go out and Paul is going to be taking a nap or relaxing because he's had a tough day. And, she's doing all this prepping and as he's explaining it, his realization and her realization, which he can't see is that he's figuring out she's having it there and she's figuring out what he's explaining is the same thing that she's doing. Mm-hmm. But the, but she doesn't know that he knows as he, cause of his, cause she's not able to see his facial expressions. And then he comes up and gives her the kiss before the mirror. And she has this, the same hostile reaction that happened between Walter and Lucy, which to him seals the deal. And he mm-hmm. goes to follow them and uh, follow her and finds out that she's with, goes to meet her lover in a park type thing. And she's scared. He's like, we can't do this. We got to stop it because she knows he's on the case. And uh, being, a, I guess also being a legal mind, she knows he's able to logically deduce things rather quickly once <laughs> things are going down a certain path and yeah. um, and that kind of thing. So it's – I just thought that was such an interesting dynamic going on in that bedroom scene where she is just um, getting herself ready and, and both of them are realizing what the other is realizing and the little facial expressions and the, and the, the, the stares away. You know, it's just like – it was like the tell. Also, there was a giveaway prior to that with um, Hilda, played by Jean Dixon, who's a, mm-hmm. uh, the female lawyer that assists Paul. 
um, she's at the house before Paul shows up and um, something, you know, she was starting to realize, well, starting to realize that, that Maria was having an affair because Maria says the thing, well, the husband's always the last to know. And, mm-hmm. and Hilda's like, her reaction to it was almost like, Hmm, like, like, like almost like she knew that Maria was having an affair. And that's what I think as an audience member, I was thinking, Oh, she's having an affair too. Well, here's the thing that uh, the, from the, the, from a, from a 50,000 foot level, let's talk about that is, this is, this is the moment in the film where I first felt like this movie needed to be a little longer because, uh, uh, and don't get me wrong. This is, this is part and parcel of it. Probably coming, probably this, this flaw or this problem that I have with the, the way the narrative plays out probably stems from it being from a uh, safe play. And it goes like this. Um, our lawyer character, who is essentially our main character, has just come from his uh, his interview with his friend, who he's going to be defending against uh, this murder charge about murdering his wife. And the next scene with that character is him discovering that his wife is doing the same thing. It felt like we had we 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 needed to do this as fast as possible, and it feels clunky. I, I really do wish that there had been an intervening scene between the husband and wife that showed them, uh, you know, just having a normal interaction and then ended before we got to the scene where we discover that he suspects his wife of infidelity that then leads to him following our discovery. Because it feels like we, you know, somebody hit the fast forward button on the storytelling and it feels really clunky. And it's one of the moments in the in the movie, especially the first time through. You're you're more forgiving the second time through because you're aware of where things are going. But it really took me out of it to to you know the 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 moment we the, the first scene we see these two characters interact with each other, we are immediately jumped into oh well infidelity. We're we're, we're right back to that that part of the story where I, I just feel like the the story just needed a little bit more. Sp- little bit more uh, breathing room to give to give us a sense of the fact that these characters exist outside of the, the plot mechanics that are making things happen. How, now, how, that becomes a, a kind of minor thing once you, you know, look, look at the film once it's over. But it did, it is one of those things where you're just like, ooh, yeah, that's a that's a little clunkier than it needs to be. And I don't know what the, like I say, I, I will I will throw the my thinking onto the idea of it being you know a stage stage play adaptation but the sequence where they're having this conversation she's sitting in front of the mirror with him that the framing of that scene where he's laying down on that on that little couch and she they're carrying on their conversation while she's uh, fixing up her makeup and making sure her hair is okay because she's about to, to go out as she told her husband to go play bridge with a friend of hers for a couple of hours the framing of that entire sequence is absolutely astonishing because it, it it's it very much reminds me of like a a king or a pharaoh some kind of ruler lying you know lying down and as uh he's surrounded by his various uh possessions there in his castle and it, the, the way that shot is set up is just amazing and, and not just because I, I love the way they have the you know like multiple mirrors framed around her this also sets up one of the one of the little through lines of the thinking of the main character of 
uh, Frank Morgan's character, which is this obsession. He suddenly he suddenly start he, they they don't tug this string out as far as I think they could, but this uh, obsession that he seems to see within women for their vanity, their their desire and need to see their own uh, gorgeous reflections or a, a perfected form of their reflections, you know, pushed back at them at all times. This, this idea that it is, it's, it's only, you know, that, that they have some obsession with it when the movie does kind of slightly come to the point where I think it really should have landed, which is great, which is the idea that, no, 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 the reason these women become obsessed with this is because this is their main attraction to the men who will eventually own them. This is what they use to be, you know, this is their place in society. This is how they gain a place in society is by being attractive. And the only way they can do this is by examining their reflection, by being that quote unquote vain creature. And there's just so much going on. And this is the scene that sets it all up where the, Questions that that swirl around this story as it as it advances very quickly is uh, you know it's it's a chicken or egg question are women vain or are men the 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 ones who push this vanity upon women because that is how they value them that is what their commo- that's the commodity that they're looking for in a woman and uh, it it's this thing like I say it doesn't get teased out because the movie's got a, a different thing in mind, but it is a kind of sideline plot or a, a sideline idea that that kind of fuels the plot as it goes along, which is uh, the you know wh- wh- which is wh- which comes first, the women's attitude toward their own looks or the men's attitude towards their looks. In other words, what's the, what's the valuation and what starts it and what's the point of it? And the uh, like I say, other than my my feeling that we get to the second piece of almost identical infidelity too quickly in the story to make it feel natural the what, what I, I'll be honest you know what I wondered is if and, and, and there, there's a great movie to be made in this and I'm, I'll, I guarantee you it's been made because I think I've seen it somewhere but I just can't remember what movie it was and there's an amazing idea in there of a man in the exact same position who thinks he now sees the same kinds of of uh, of clues in his own home life, suddenly becoming convinced that his wife is uh, is cheating on him, and then doing something completely irrational, possibly all the way up to murder, and then realizing after the fact that he was wrong. That is an incredible idea for a story as well. But of course, that's not the direction this thing goes. This movie wants to uh, very strongly point out that marital infidelity, for some reason, is incredibly common. And uh, uh, one of the things that I think uh, this movie doesn't point to too strongly, except visually, is to take note of one of the possibilities. Um, and I, I, I'm not sure about this in the first in, in the in the incident in the incident that starts the film off. I'm not so sure about this. But is it just me, or is there a, a fair number of years difference between the ages of Frank Morgan's character and his wife's character? The, uh, she seems a little younger than him. The, and yeah, Frank the, Morgan the, is like 43, I think, when this was being filmed, and she's like 30. So there's like a there's a gap there. And also the same thing with Walter's character and Lucy's character. There's a significant age difference. 
Ah, okay, okay. See, see, that's something else that I, the movie doesn't, you know, there's never any talk of age. There's never any talk of anything that would allude to the idea of, you know, uh, a younger woman uh, wanting, you know, wanting to have a younger lover. But that does seem to be the indication that we get visually because both, you know, both the, both the, uh, the lovers of the, uh, of the wives here are, uh, are younger, it's mar- markedly younger than their husbands. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, like I say, that's something the movie could have, could have drug out more if it wanted to, but it doesn't need to because it does. I think it does so pretty effectively visually. Yeah. And I think if the movie can do it visually, it's better than, always trying to over explain something you'll give the audience faith as yeah. for your you're on one thing i think what you're talking about if they would add a just a few minute scene where after the murder walter i'm sorry paul and uh, maria are having let's say breakfast right and so, so you're able to establish their relationship and all that stuff and that is how paul finds out about the murder and has to go then to help his friend it could be the way. That's a good idea. I so, like. I like that idea. Yeah. So you can have a a few minute to five minute scene establish the workings of the household to get the idea or mm-hmm. just their relationship, and then port him over to going to the thing. And that's when and that's when you can establish Hilda and Schultz, his um, co lawyer and his like um his assistant, and to, mm-hmm. to go there and uh, that can be introduced when he goes to the prison. You know, to, to actually not the prison, but to the uh, constable, to essentially go to the prison, or don't hurt the prosecutor, and then goes to the yeah, prison the prosecutor. To, to meet the person, um, to meet Walter. And so you could have had that relationship established. And I think you're, you're talking adding just a few minutes, so it would have been instead of an hour and nine minutes, an hour and fourteen minutes, and then I think it would have solved your your big problem. The hardest thing is without without seeing the play the script and the play, it's hard to tell. It might've been in there and maybe it didn't work and the, ed- and they edited it out because as we said, as we said earlier, James Whale is notoriously known to edit things out for pacing. Yeah. Yeah. And so they might've filmed something like that. And James Whale might've edited it out. It might not have been in the script at all. As you said, it's hard to say without having read the original script of the play and then see, then, then we can tell what made it to the final film. I'd love to know just out of curiosity, because uh, it, it, first of all, you know, if, if you, if you think about this, this uh, presented as a play, a play usually runs you know, 90 to 90 minutes to two hours. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're talking about the full presentation of even, even with a, a break in the middle. And so I have the suspicion that there are, there are things that were in the play that are not. Still. I, I think without having seen the play, knowing that they would use usually when you use a lot of different sets, they might not have been play even shown the initial murder. It might have picked up maybe not with him being explained to. And then for the film version, they added the murder in. Um, you know, so oh, that's, that, that's a strong possibility. You're right. And, and I think that's an interesting way of also looking at it as if you wanted to film it. You could film it where, and then do it as a flashback sequence when he's explaining it to him in the prison and then see it that way instead of opening up with the murder. Uh, you know, it's a couple ways you can do it. I think I think it works this way because you know you get right to the the, the heart of the matter. But I mean, it also could have worked in a flashback sequence. Uh, something else I something else I'd like to bring up. That, okay, since the the main thrust, the whole the whole underlying undercarriage, the whole reason this thing exists is to 
to the, the, the engine that drives it is marital infidelity. And specifically, and I think this is interesting, the infidelity of a wife. We never, ever have anybody in this movie who is a husband who's cheating on his wife. That is, that is just not, that's not even brought up as a possible subject, which is really weird considering which, which is the more prevalent of the two particular activities in reality. But did you, the, the strangeness, there's this one brief little scene as, uh, as the lawyer is leaving uh, prison where he's, where he's uh, had his interview with uh, the, the murderer and he, he, <laughs> He runs across uh, another a prisoner there as he's leaving, who is in jail because he murdered his cheating wife. And it's like two two different things. All of all of a sudden, it's just like is is, is there just is this just a prison for men who murdered their cheating wives? Is that is that all that exists in this prison? Is that what this is built for specifically in Vienna? They need a prison where all they do is lock up men who murdered their wives. But the uh, the the presentation of that little exchange is rather humorous uh where uh and this guy is clearly uh, from, from the poorer so- social strata of of the of the, uh, the society this is a this is a poor guy whereas this entire story takes place amongst the very well to do you know lawyers and businessmen and uh government you know government officials and things like this all of these people are uh, you know well-dressed uh, professionals Whereas this is this is our one glimpse at someone outside of that social strata, and he you know he's also he's also a white murderer. So I'm, I'm, the 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 idea of of what the, what this is uh, what that little one little scene is supposed to get across is, is kind of interesting. It's like well you know everybody murders their cheap wives, or this is just a, a universal thing. That doesn't, ha- you know, that doesn't stop at any societal borders. It's not a class conscious thing. It's just, it's a, it's a question of uh, a, the universal universality of the uh, the emotional content of what this means to a person. It's, it's, it's an interesting little addition to them. Well, and actually, Hilda, Gene Dixon's character, as mm-hmm. explains to Paul about this, it's like well, he says, "Oh, I'm going to use this defense." He goes. Well, I don't know if it's going to work because a lot of people have been using that defense. It's like it, she she makes a quip. It's like seems like everybody's doing it, you know. And uh, we're run, and people, yeah. the, the juries are going to start to wonder: are there, are there that many um, lovers out there, <laughs> you know, to <laughs> to to be able to take these women? And so it, it it implies, as you just said, that this seems to be in Vienna a, a, a rampant thing, you know, where women are cheating on their husbands and getting offed and, and, and people are getting away with it for, for love of passion. The one guy you talked about, it was interesting because Paul stops at his character to, to talk to him. He said, I'll get you out soon. And he's, Oh, I've already been out. I killed her and now I'm back. And I'm so much more at peace because I know she's no longer out there doing, you know, what, and it's just, bizarre you know this this guy's total loss of reality which makes you wonder what he went into prison to begin with did he it wasn't an attempted murder and then he went in but he got out and now he's yeah actually killed her. it's just is he a, is and he it's played for laughs or? it's played for laughs which is so odd it's one of the few you know humorous moments in the movie the movie does have a few humorous moments uh but the that's the, that's the only scene where you, you realize that it's it's there primarily to get a laugh, but also to kind of you know to have another you know little information point about marital infidelity. It's bizarre. 
And besides that character, the two characters that bring most of the humor in are Hilda's character in Schultz. Schultz played by Charles mm-hmm. Grapewin, and who's also in the Wizard of Oz is Uncle Henry, just to keep that through line yeah, going. <laughs> but their, their humor is different in that um, Schultz is, is a little more broader or whatever, where Hilda's is more intellectual. You have to think about some of her lines a little bit and, and, and get the humor or get the, the realization of what she's actually saying. And I think that plays up to that she's a, a female lawyer and Schultz is the um, the assistant that copies the notes and that kind of stuff who likes to drink because it balances out having, you know, because he gets so low when he has to write all these murder things down and the, and the alcohol brings him up. And, of course, Paul says, I guess you I guess you have a lot of ups and downs. You know, it's just, you know, there's some interesting dialogue between the two of them, but it's, uh, but you never see him drunk in the thing. It's like implied he's a drunk, but I've never seen it where he was actually like your, your typical drunk. They, they seem to be uh, coding uh, his character as someone who, when he's working, uh, stays stone cold sober, but when he's not working, that's when he drinks. So uh, I, I, that, that, that's very interesting. I like the way they do that. Oh, I do too. I think it's more interesting to talk about Gene Dixon's character. Oh, I'm fascinated by her character because it, this character, it is implied that she is a lot of different things. It depends on which way you want to take stuff and how she answers dialogue because she's single. Because one person's experience was, she goes by being single. I don't have to worry about being murdered. You know, it was just kind of implied that way. (laughs) Yeah. And what she's going to do with her day off. Like she gets the rest of the day off and she's like, Oh, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm not going to be a lawyer, but I might not be a lady either, you know? And, uh, it, mm-hmm. it, it implies also that she could have a different sexual orientation than the other characters. I think that that is, that's definitely what is being alluded to here. And I'd be curious to know if that was, uh, the way that character was played in the stage play, but here in the film, uh, she's definitely coded as, as a lesbian and, uh, the, there's no what what I love is there's no it's it's not seen as a negative or a positive except in one line where she's where the where um Maria is in conversation with her and uh kind of makes the the, the little joke you know something you know what you know the question of whether you're a lawyer or a lady uh implying that uh by being a lawyer you kind of take you know you kind of take yourself by being a professional of any type really you're taking yourself out of the uh, arena of being a wife to a large degree. Uh, You can be a professional or you can be a wife, but you can't be both. And uh, once again, that can be read multiple ways where they're both aware of the character's sexuality, you know, not being heterosexual or it being a question of the, you know, making the choice of wanting to be a professional or be a lawyer and therefore having to push any kind of relationship to the side, uh, especially with a man, because you know of what that of what that would do to the to the fragile male ego, which is that you know you have a woman who's a professional. Well, you can't have that. She's got to be at home. Yeah, and again, this is like listeners. This is ninety years ago, so everything was mm-hmm. different in um, cultural acceptance at that time. So you know yeah, you have to look yeah. into that way. And for that that period of time, this would have been something that would have been um, an outlier. She would, have, she would have been an outlier um, compared to what the norm of society was. Well, the beauty of this is this is one of those rare instances in a Hollywood film where 
we don't have to speculate on the possible thought process behind the camera to a certain degree because we know damn good and well that the director of this movie was a gay man. So his deci- the, the decision as to whether or not that might or be, might be considered to be included in the film at all, in other words, having a very carefully coded gay woman, it, it's not even in question. This is not something that would be tossed out as a, a ridiculous concept because Whale has a track record of including characters like that in his other movies, where it's very obvious, if you open your eyes and pay attention, that this character is to be read as homosexual. And that, like I say, rare instance, because, you know, not a whole lot of openly gay film directors, especially in that period of Hollywood. And so that that adds a, a another interesting tidbit, some color to this film that if someone else had directed it, boy, what a different film it would probably be, but it certainly would not have that very obvious bit uh, hanging out there uh, where we didn't have to speculate too hard simply because of the fact that James Whale. And I realized my, my comment might not have been clear. I wasn't talking about her sexuality. I was talking about her being a professional and working. Oh, uh, no, no, and that's the beauty of it is that character allows you to talk about both. Oh, I know, but, because, that's, and, but that's what I, I was leading that, towards, yeah. though. It was that, you know, more, more along oh, those okay. lines, her being an outlier for being a – a, a female lawyer and professional. I mean, it's just something mm-hmm. without having done really any research, but I'm just, just judging from periods of time in history, I would think that she would be the exception rather than the norm. And that's what I mean by an outlier. Um, as I oh, wasn't, she was, she would definitely be the exception. Yep. And she was, she was played very well. I just, I felt Jean Dixon did a, a very good job. It's a, it's a small role. It's a role that's, mm-hmm. that she's in a lot of the movie cause she's in the courtroom scenes. Um, she's in the house in and out. She goes to different things and just like Schultz and they, and they provide different aspects to the movie. Um, Schultz is more of a comedic relief. And like I said, uh, Jean Dixon's character is, you can look at it at like some social commentary. You can look at it as she has that intellectual wit. Uh, there's a lot of things I I enjoyed about her character. I enjoyed the scenes that Hilda was in. I wish she was in more scenes, but then I always go by the theory is it, it, you have somebody that's in too many scenes and sometimes less is more. You always want, you always want to be yeah. wanting more. I think if you're wanting more, then you're, you're happy. You had a happy experience. Yeah. Uh, with, with, with supporting actors, that's, that's always that, that weird balancing act is, you know, they, they can often come in and, and steal a scene, but if they come in and steal too many scenes, then you start to wonder about the balance of the narrative. You start to wonder what the heck is going on. Yeah. Gene Dixon's a bit of a surprise to me. I've seen her in uh, only two films before. My Man Godfrey and Holiday. And the thing is, she only made 16 movies. The bulk of her acting was on the stage. I mean, she did a lot of stage work. That's where she was best uh, best known. And uh, she's, I mean, she's so she's so good in this. It now makes me want to, to uh, take a look at some of her other movies that I've never seen before just to see what, you know, what, 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 what was Hollywood doing with her? Was she a constant um, supporting actor? Was she playing similar roles as to what she's playing here? Uh, I'm, I'm very curious to know, because I don't even remember exactly what role she played in My Man Godfrey because I haven't watched it in forever. And, and of course, my aging brain loses fails. Sorry, sorry, sorry. But it does. And so now I'm wondering, um, if it, it, you know, we only have the 16 roles for her to, uh, or well, less than 16 movies. She did some uh, television appearances later in her career, later in her life as well, doing uh, 
doing some plays that were shot for television. But the, uh, the, the, the talent on screen here, she just adds to, an, she's just another aspect of how well cast and how, uh, how much talent was just popping off of the screen. And she's very good. And now I want to see, uh, I want to see if I can catch some more of her performances to see what she was like in other kinds of roles as well. Oh, I, I definitely agree. I mean, I, there's, I don't think there's a weak performance with any of the main characters or sub main supporting characters that I can think of, um, from watching no, not it. a one. They're either all yeah. solid to extremely strong. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, and that's, and that's just the way, you know, I was looking at it. Music. What do you think of the music? Cause the, um, W Franke Harling did the music. And I remember him for one of my favorite movies winning the Oscar for Stagecoach, the 1939 one with John Wayne and, um, and that kind of thing. So it's, what, what do you think of the music with this movie? I'll be honest. I, the, only the second time through did the music actually register on me. And I'll be honest, that's a good thing for a story of this type because the movie, the, the music, and this is early. Let's, let's everyone remember, this is early in the, uh, in the adoption of, uh, having music within uh, a feature film. I mean, it was only a couple of years before this when, you know, having, having music within the body of your, of your, of your film was just not done. I mean, anybody who has any questions about this, especially if you just want to stick with James Whale, just look at Frankenstein. There's no music in there. And so, well, you're, you know, either there's end music, there's the credits music and the end music. This is still early in the, in the, uh, the process of learning uh, how to use music in a way to bolster the story and to make things more effective emotionally. And uh, I have to admit, I didn't, you know, it, it didn't register with me at all other than it just being something that's there until the second time through. And then I began to notice that they're very smartly using, you know, string, string instruments, to, uh, to, uh, to kind of uh, give you an idea of the, the kinds of emotions that are swirling around in the characters. And they almost always seem to, at least my memory of it is that the music always seems to be there only when we've got um, a solitary character on screen as if the music is there trying to give you a better sense of what's going on in their heads, which is, which is pretty cool. I, uh, I, like I said, I don't know enough about the, the, uh, the uh, person who created the music to know what they felt was their strengths or how they, uh, how they looked about, you know, how they went about composing for, for different kinds of things. But uh, I can't say anything bad about the music. And I have to say that the, the one, the only two times in the movie where, where it stood out to me, uh, it was a positive addition to the story. Yeah. I, I enjoyed the music and it, I noticed it, or I noticed my first time watching the film film and um, how it was being used and not used, you know, cause uh, I'm a proponent where you don't have to have music and everything. And of course, these early films, music is used very judiciously, you know, because it's like you said, it's being introduced. People, directors and everything are starting to figure out how to incorporate composers in to the movies. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and of course, as you know, in the 30s, it pretty much picks up real fast how they can start to incorporate it to augment the picture or and sometimes um, to the detriment of the picture. You know, if you don't have something that really... Um, um, works with the the work itself so it's yeah. um, but no, i enjoyed it because i think it, it had good additions to it it, it augmented the storyline and the plot that was going on and uh it, it worked in especially in the in the early scene with the um 
setting up the murder of Lucy and stuff like that, how they used the music with um, Walter Pynchon humming, but there's also music in the background that was matching with that, which yeah. then led, led to Lucy playing the uh, the piano, which and and of course that same sound came back to play when Paul and Maria were having that talk where she's getting herself ready, you can start to hear that music again. So it was incorporated in, mm-hmm. I thought, rather well to tie that that together. It's kind of trying to blend the uh, blend the uh, the suspicious husband's sequences together. Yeah, yeah. My puppy's playing with a plastic ball. So it's, <laughs> so we're getting a little background noise from him. Well, I, I can't hear anything if that helps. Yeah, I, just, I see it getting picked up on the board, but uh, we'll see how it, we'll see how it plays out in the end. <laughs> <laughs> but overall, I mean, I really, I really enjoyed this film. I mean, it's, um, I think, I think the only quibbles that you and I have both mentioned is it could have been um, a few minutes longer with an additional scene, um, just, to, just to give it a little bit, so that it didn't feel so, uh, so it didn't feel so artificial that we were immediately getting to another, in, you know, another infidelity. Uh, that quickly, it just you know, we, we, just to give us a little bit more light. But you know, that that's that's a pretty minor thing. But uh, I, I, I can't emphasize enough how my first trip through this movie, man, I thought, I thought, wow, this this is a misogynistic film. This is a movie that everybody does. Everybody involved in this movie hate women. <laughs> As it progresses, you begin to realize, okay, it's, it's a little, it, it's a little different from that. Man, just just presenting that idea so bald facedly, especially in the first half, just sitting there going, "Wow, is every woman we meet going to be some kind of cheating wife? Is that what the, is that what the you know is that what we find out is that literally every wife in Vienna is cheating on her husband?" I almost forget. <laughs> I almost forget. There's something you and I mentioned earlier before we started recording. I want to make sure we get into the record. The newspaper man covering the trial. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That I thought that was just you talk about <laughs> uh, the cynicism on display. Oh yeah. my god! Literally putting stuff down on the paper before the events happen because it's going to happen this way anyway. <laughs> or or mm-hmm. or as the people are going in, the one guy's like, "Oh, to look at them as the, as all the people are trying to get into the trial to hear the uh, the closing thing and then hear the verdict." They're rushing in, and you hear the guy telling the person, uh, "People are mobbing. The mob is rushing in to get there." This, I'm paraphrasing a lot here, uh, mm-hmm. and, and people are getting hurt, and some had to go to get treatment. And one guy goes, "Did that happen?" Nah, but it'll sell papers. <laughs> exactly. Ah, <laughs> like, oh, the heyday of yellow journalism. I mean, that's you know, I, I'm always reminded of those scenes in uh, Citizen Kane. You know, the the whole the whole William Randolph Hearst thing. Yeah, exactly. Which which kind of takes us almost to modern times, or uh, it, it'll get us clicks. You know, that's the main thing. We need the clicks. And why, why yeah. worry about the truth when we can just revise well, it later you know, as on? The, as long as the headline uh, entices you to click on it, then, you know, we've made our money. Because, you know, it's, we, we get, you know, we get that extra click that allows us to, to, to sell to advertisers at a certain rate. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, when I saw that and, and heard that, I was just like, my, as I think you were the same way. You're thinking... Uh, the more things change, sometimes the more things stay the same. <laughs> things cycle through so obviously sometimes, yeah. What do they say? History doesn't always repeat itself, but it, 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 a lot of times it does rhyme. <laughs> uh-huh. And and certain things are universal. 
Yes, they are. And wait I think minute, was this, wait, 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 is this a universal film? I forgot. It is. <laughs> it is a universal film. Oh, how did I miss that joke until after it already said it? That sucks. You were so close to sticking the landing. I thought you were going for it. I know. I was, oh man, that's, that's a fail right at the end. Oh, that's sad. Well, at least it's, at least it's not on your show. So you can, you can blame it on me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it's not on my show. So I can't fix it in the editing. (laughs) Oh, don't worry. I'll try to make you sound totally incompetent, but. (laughs) (laughs) Go go for it. Go for it. Do it. Do it, man. Make me sound like a gibberish maniac. Well, what can you say? We know we are, we are what we are. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. That's definitely what I am some days. But I really, I really glad you pointed out this movie to me to say the kiss before the mirror. Cause I didn't know it was available on Blu-ray to you said it. Then I went and purchased it. And then we both got it. We were able to watch it, record this and add it to the retrospective. And as you were bringing up earlier, and one of my reasons for this retrospective is to get people that awareness of the, the other work that James Whale's done, because only four of the films that were covered out of the 10 that we're covering are in the horror or you can, you can argue maybe um, dramatic adventure, you know, if you don't want to say horror, because back then, you know, before horror was termed, it was more like an adventure or or type film with some drama scenes uh, into it. And now people are going to be able to look and say, Oh, he did comedies. He did, he did murders um, or drama pieces like this one. He did um, musicals. I mean, there's so many action movies like The Man in the Iron Mask. There's so many different movies mm-hmm. that he's done and different genres, all within a, a little more than a ten year period. It's just it just amazes me. Well, here's where I uh, here's where I step in it really big time by pointing out that uh, uh, James Whale himself remade this movie five years later. He he remade this exact story. Wasn't it Wives uh, Under Suspicion? Wives Under Suspicion in 1938, uh, based on the exact same play. Uh, the movie has the same running time. <laughs> I wonder if it's the. I wonder if it's just. I wonder if it's just a complete remake. And here's the horrible thing. I now, of course, want to see this, but I have kept myself from looking it up to see if it's available to buy so that I can keep myself from rushing to, to see this that quickly. Um, uh, yes, that, that means that something that I used to think was incredibly rare back in my youth, which was a single director remaking his own movie, because I, I knew about uh, Hitchcock doing uh, two versions of the, the Man Who Knew Too Much. And I knew about a few other directors who had remade their own films, you know, years apart. Uh, but my God, even James Whale did it with this particular story. He made it, he made it again. Wives Under Suspicion, 1938. I can't find it on like as, as a DVD. Looking there. My understanding is that oh, in the I 60s did. it fell into public domain. It is. It's on, it's in oldies.com for $6. And see, here's the thing. If it's in public domain, that means it's probably sitting on YouTube someplace, which means it's exactly a click away. It is on YouTube so, also. I can see it right now. I'm looking right at it. One hour and eight minutes and 50 seconds. Yep. And which means that here eventually I will watch this just so that I can compare the two movies to see what, just to see what the differences are. Now, listeners, will there end up being an addendum added to the retrospective series down the road with Wives Under Suspicion? <laughs> if we do, it'll be with Rod and myself, and we'll compare the two. <laughs> this I, I, you know what? It wouldn't be a bad idea, but let's not commit to it quite yet. Yes, but um, otherwise, 
Ron, thank you for joining me. And where can people again find your um, podcast? Uh, the jumping off page would be uh, the Bloody Pit of Rod blog, where you'll find links to uh, any and all podcasts I'm involved with, which aren't just the two that I do, the Nashi Cast and the Bloody Pit, but also uh, I uh, am a I, I'm a co-host of a buddy of mine's podcast as well called Wild Wild Planet, which uh, focuses on uh, shall we say bizarre genre cinema from the Italians. Uh, we did uh, ten episodes on Italian science fiction. We're currently doing uh, a mini season of three episodes focused on ripoffs of Pasolini's film, The Decameron. Um, we're having a, having a lot of fun with that, although it is difficult to find a lot of these movies with English translations because they are just really silly sex comedies from the early 70s. Uh, and after that, we'll be uh, the Wild, Wild Wild Planet will uh, go into uh, seasons of other uh, bizarre genres perpetrated by the Italians in the uh, probably the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I'm not exactly sure how far will range. But the, uh, the, 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 I, I, I podcast far too frequently, and that is becoming evident. <laughs> but it is always fun, so I get drawn back in. And for that, I once again want to thank you, good sir, for inviting me on to do this. Uh, again, but then again, people will be hearing this one first, but, uh, you know, for the second time, really. Shush. Yes. And again, thank you for joining me. And, um, but we've reached the end of our journey with the kiss before the mirror and listeners stay tuned to the next episode of the diecast movie podcast. Where we'll either be doing a movie decided by the role of a die an interview or the continuation of the James Whale retrospective as always have a good day, stay safe and do something fun. The kiss before the mirror. If you don't want to buy the blu-ray it's on YouTube. At least it is when we were recording this. Hopefully it's still out there. Enjoy it and watch Wives Under Suspicion. It's public domain. It's also on YouTube. You can compare the two. <laughs> Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love, a look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil, and our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. Thank you.